episode number 74, Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast, recording on Treaty 7 territory. Season 10. Picking up the pieces from the bonus episodes during the Advent season. What's up, y'all? My name is Ro Hattie. Very happy that you could join us. Please rate this show, share it far and wide, get the word out. For all the guests that we have, you hear my voice on these episodes, but I usually, always, almost always, bring guests on. This show will feature author Tasha June. Her book, Tell Me the Dream Again, Reflections on Family, Ethnicity, and the Sacred Work of Belonging, a beautiful narrative that we chart through this episode. So sit back, open your ear holes, and let's get started. Tasha, welcome to the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am particularly excited about this conversation because I feel our books are kindred spirits. Can books be kindred spirits? Siblings, kindred spirits. <laughs> siblings, yeah, totally. They're siblings. They're siblings. They're cousins. <laughs> there you they go. They hang out at the same, you know, family reunion <laughs> and bring all of their own book foods and would have <laughs> a great time. <laughs> Jeez, that actually sounds incredible. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I love that picture of a book um, family gathering. I'm mean, thinking about that now. <laughs> That's a uh, dang. If it wasn't still pandemic times, something like that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Future. That's exciting. <laughs> That's so exciting. Mm, I'm going to hang on to that. You're right. One of the first questions that I ask all guests as they crisscross through the show is to name the lands, the traditional lands in which you're situated, but also to help situate, you know, what city, town you are in for listeners. So where are your feet touching right now? Um, so I am in the greater Indianapolis area and on the traditional lands of the Miami and Kickapoo. I want to jump right into your book. I valued the storytelling that went into it. I could feel almost the connections as you were redeveloping them or finding them anew. Tell me the dream, again, reflections on family, ethnicity, and the sacred work of belonging. We're going to talk a ton about belonging, but first off, what a beautiful book. Like from art on the outside to the stories on the inside, I, I'm going to ask a trite question. It's not a what compelled you to write this, but were there moments leading up to this book idea where you felt, I just have to explore this or I just have to mm. unpack this because something inside of me is ready to burst out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I don't know if that's true for every writer and every story. Um, but, you know, this one, and I've shared this before, this is one that 
I started actually, you know, decades ago in a college, I'm very old, but decades ago in a college mm. class, it was a memoir class. Um, when memoir wasn't even really considered a genre at the time, it was kind of a newer literary, you know, genre, not that there hadn't been any, but there was an argument about considering it as such, you know, um, and so I took this class and was really moved by it. And one of the assignments was to, to write or try our hand at memoir. Um, of course, not a whole book, but just, you know, a small project. And so hmm. when I sat down to write in that class, all that would come out were these stories, you know, that my mom had told me. It's like they were already bubbling up under the surface and creatively, I couldn't go in any other direction. And obviously it's also nonfiction, but we were kind of working creatively within our you know, writing. And so really, I always say this mm. is when that book started. Um, I couldn't finish it, you know, for, you know, over it was it's been over 20. How many years? Has it been? You know, a long time since then. And so when I sat down thinking that I had a book idea and it was more a general book about belonging at the time, I yeah. kind of just this book came back and it was like, now it's time to finish. And so um, mm. I really couldn't get away from it. So I don't know if I'll write again. <laughs> I mean, I'll always be writing, but as far as books, <laughs> course, I don't know. Um, I don't know what that will be like because this one felt very much like it wants to get out and now is the time. Yeah. And yeah, so yes, yeah. as cliche as that may mm. sound, but. it's Oh, it's not cliche. That's very, uh, t <laughs> I'm going to name drop the one Korean, the second Korean author <laughs> I know of. I just finished Pachinko. Oh, and, yes. And that was a 20-year work i think 20 plus years yeah to put that together incredible so, work yeah it's um it took me so long to read that mm. but when i think of your story and and the first ideas were teased out 20 years ago like that makes a lot of sense mm -hmm. <laughs> that makes a lot of and and you couldn't finish it because it wasn't time because you weren't there yeah I hadn't lived <laughs> a lot of the stories that were going to be added to it, you know, it, they hadn't happened yet. So, and yeah, yeah I was not there um, just in any capacity <laughs> to finish it, you know, emotionally, spiritually, you know, none of that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what incredible timing. Hey, yeah. It's funny how those things work out. It really is. <laughs> Did you feel like that with any of your books or just, you know, that there was something that you had oh, to say? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and that's why I scoff. I scoff, Tasha, <laughs> at the notion that this may be the only book that you put out because there will be another, even if it's 20 more years, something that has to come out. <laughs> you know, it just has. I've been holding it and holding mm -hmm. it. And then it comes out as a book, of course. Yeah. Even if it doesn't make sense now. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait for your next one. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that you feel like that. <laughs> I didn't realize this. It wasn't a 20-year period, but the stories are certainly ones that have taken me 20 years plus to process. But my sure. book was a little bit, but my book was totally different. And I didn't really name it or realize it until I looked back to the, uh, each one of my books has its own notepad. Ah. And this, this notepad had remarkable on the fringes. That's what it was called. And that was the precursor to what When We Belong wound up being. Yeah, so, that makes a lot of sense. It's really cool. It makes a lot of writing sense. Yeah. Oh, we're nerding out on writing now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>
I wonder if you can give us a snapshot of what it looked like. I think folks would be able to capture this. So you don't need to get into the, the gritty details, but what it looked like to almost, I'm sure you felt like this, dissociate from yourself in order to assimilate into dominant culture that was around you mm-hmm. in faith, in work, in, in everything, in life. Offer us the snapshot of your story of holding that tension. Yeah, I mean, it didn't start that way. Um, Mm -hmm. And it was more so, you know, as we moved, as I encountered the world around me, um, without knowing that there was this dominant hierarchy or this, you know, um, just the ways that white supremacy flowed into everything, even in our time living overseas, you know, as a child, I didn't have the history for that or the understanding or the language, but, you know, we all feel it, whether we acknowledge Mm. it or not. Um, and so hmm. for me, I think, and I can't remember, I mean, I have stories, but I can't remember exact pinpoints, but I remember just this kind of moving away from what felt like this safe understanding in our home of being a biracial multicultural home. That was who we were. Could I explain it? No, hmm. but I could feel it in our home and it felt safe. But then as I moved out into the world and had a hard time um describing who we were you know with words it was it almost felt like you know there was always this opportunity you know to to try to explain ourselves like when we moved to Japan and I was asked something Mm -hmm. I was explaining I'm an American how that was like one of the first things I learned to say in Japanese and getting Mm -hmm. a weird look Mm -hmm. not realizing that oh I don't look like what someone who lives here is expecting an American to look like. And then I would follow it up with, but I'm Korean, not, but I would say I am Korean. And that also receiving, Mm. you know, almost as a further explanation. Um, So, you know, at a young age, it's like that question of what are you? And that expectation of an explanation was already there, even overseas. I can remember feeling embarrassed, you know, as I continued to try to explain. And so that, that shame starting to creep in whether the, whoever I was talking to, you know, intended for that or was kind or, you know, about it or whatnot, just feeling that opportunity for shame to creep in and feeling like, I don't want to be in this situation again. Like, I don't like Mm. how this feels. Um, But that was the extent of how I, all I knew, I just knew I didn't like how it felt. And so to avoid anything like that, anything where someone was trying to figure out what I was, um, you know, it just carries out further, um, and different experiences add on to it, but it was like, you start to feel like you have to hide some of that. Um, and I couldn't really hide how I looked, but I could avoid yeah. situations, you know, mm-hmm. and try to do whatever I could to fit in. So, and that carried on, <laughs> I don't know. So, um, and that carried on until, I mean, for a very long time, as you read. Um, and I think for a long time, I didn't realize that I was kind of separating. It it would only come up when I was in an instance where, you know, either someone wanted to come to my house or someone wanted to do something that would require them to step beyond this veil of what I could keep Mm, contained. Um, And then it was like, oh, wait, that's not going to (laughs) work. What am I going to do? And then it was this awareness of, oh, I'm like living two lives or, you know, something like that I'm hiding. um, And I have to face that. So. You used a a word that uh, that's not how I would describe 
my own experience because I think the season just before this one is season nine is one on mental health and embodiment. So oh, emotions yeah. and holding those pieces and I don't know, I'll blame culture and patriarchy of why <laughs> emotions are not my strong suit mm. and to identify them. But you said a couple of times about how you could feel, mm. you could feel what was there in the house, but yet could not name. Yeah. I mean, well, I think as, you know, kids and no matter what messaging we get early on, I mean, I think that's how we experience the world as we you know, our senses, we feel things, we taste things, we have strong reactions to those, to those feelings. We're very much in our bodies, you know, without having language for it. And I think, so that's what I remember. I remember, you know, I didn't have language for what was happening, why I was uncomfortable or why I remember turning red, you know, when someone was asking me and I'm like, why am I turning red? Like, you know, and, and then later learning that's feeling embarrassed and what that's associated with. But I mean, you can't really control those feelings, you know? Um, and so I think that's, very much tied to my experience with understanding who I am, you know, and embracing or rejecting that. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't have been able to explain it then, but I did feel things and I remember feeling things. Um, so that's very real to me, very much part of this whole journey. Um, yeah. And probably well, and trying to hide those feelings, you know, mm. so, but they were there. I appreciate you just teasing out little pieces of that because that's certainly not not something that comes out from my story prominently, mm -hmm. but it okay. is part of the story if you can if you have the skill or even perception to notice yeah, to notice yeah. them. That makes sense. Another layer. Mm. <laughs> One of the phrases that I always hear, and especially from the, the writers who are around the genre that we have written on, for BIPOC writers, they are all using the phrase uh, 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 in lament mm. of what are you? What are you? Yeah. What are you? What are you? What are yeah. you? It's like that. Those are the, they are the daggers that have imprinted onto us as we have struggled to find space uh, to belong. What was the catalyst? And there were undoubtedly many, but a moment where you could sense a shift in worldview or perceptions, or maybe the whole world turned upside down when you realized that veil had come down and you uh, were able to give name to the pieces that were actually calling you to give up something of yourself in order to fit in. Yeah. So there's, I mean, yes, there were a lot. And sometimes I felt like there were a lot of experiences where there was like a little chip, you know, kind of like mm. chipping away Ooh, at all yeah. these things that I had used to kind of hold myself together or shield myself. And, and I talk about being very feely, but for a long time, I held so much in that I, I was known to always have a poker. Mm. Like I did not cry for years. Um, so anyway, all that to say, I feel like there was a lot of little experiences that kind of chipped away, but but never a huge chunk. Um, but there was an experience, well, kind of a, a bunch kind of collected together when I lived in Germany um, and I worked for um, an evangelical ministry at that time. I met some other biracial Germans um, who, you know, a, a varied, I mean, some more biracial 
Asian and German, um, you know, um, North African, German, and just, um, just a mix. And I remember feeling very drawn to them um, and in our friendship sharing about what it feels like to be, um, to not feel like you fit in anywhere and to be between worlds. And I remember this sense of like, there's more than me. Mm. And it's not just an American thing. This is like, there's, and for some Mm. reason, it was so comforting to me. It was so grounding. Um, And then I had this experience where I made this meal and I think it kind of was an overflow of that. And so to be so far from home, um, at this really odd time in life, but to be connecting with these people that I never would have expected to, to feel so close to. So out of the overflow of that, which is, this is more of like a celebratory thing, but I remember feeling sure, like, I want to cook this meal that my mom always made that is like a part of our family mm-hmm. and just this desire to share it with not only them, but like my, my coworkers, my team at the time. Um, which is so odd, like that is not, that was not characteristic of, you know, the years prior to that. Um, just really proud. And, um, so it felt like this kind of turn. Um, and I think it came from that community. Um, but it also allowed me to kind of look back and see like some of those years of rejection. Um, and just how in that, in that moment, I feel, I felt so alive too. So I think even coming home in a way and feeling like this feels right. It feels so good to share um mm. this food of my upbringing but me really you know yeah, yeah, yeah. people because i hadn't oh, so before cool. that yeah. that was one and then i think um this is that was like a positive experience even though there are some sad things attached to it yeah, yeah um yeah. and then later yeah. as a mom in a mom's group and i wrote about this in the book but just having someone tell me you know i don't see you as asian and just feeling just like I don't want it to be like this anymore. Like, <laughs> not that I control what other people control what other people say, but um, I don't want that to be okay. Um, yeah. That people say that to me. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and that was another moment, and especially like I had become a mom, and I think it felt even stronger. Like I do not, as much as I can, I want to lead my kids towards embracing their whole selves, um, especially yes. their ethnic identity. So. Yes. Um, yeah, it just felt really jolting and like very urgent um, in that moment. Breaking the cycles. Yes. There you go. Uh, have you read a lot of Brenny Brown? Have you heard of this Brenny Brown before? Yeah, I I, <laughs> I read a couple of books by her like years ago, and I haven't yeah. read if she's yeah. had recent ones. I haven't read those, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Me, but I mean, thoughts. like. I interrogate Brené Brown in in my book because so many people, culturally at least, especially white women, love them some Brené Brown. Yes, and I know <laughs> that it, the her work has expanded since uh, all the different stuff she's done, but it has still struck me as highly individualistic. Mm, okay, and so the question that I asked in, in in my book was, listen, if we're going to talk about belonging, right, is the matter of belonging really a start and end when you belong to yourself? Mm. And what I was trying to tease out was that is too individualistic. It is too narrow of a definition of belonging. Yeah. Too narrow, but, but you have to do that piece. You have yeah. to be able to belong to yourself. You, you, you have to be not merely okay, but in a space where 
you want to thrive cooking your own foods for your friends <laughs> yeah. type of belonging. But I find it incomplete because it only looks at the self and it doesn't look at the, I think, inextricable pieces, which are one of them is a belonging to my people mm. and how they're, it's connected to not only my people as in my parents, my grandparents, but my ancestors before yeah. them, my language, my food that encompasses all those pieces. In your journey of belonging, you I mean you wove this beautiful story with the relationship with your mom. Where are the pieces where it extended beyond just you and perhaps yeah. the light went on it something clicked and yeah. this expansive this belonging became far more expansive than just you yeah um i love that you are bringing that up because i do i feel like not many people are talking about it but as you explain that mm. that has been my experience it hasn't just been with me so um mm -hmm. yeah that's so important i would say you know i was thinking about that whole experience with the food and feeling alive and the funny thing is you know if i had been with a group of people that rejected that um i don't mm. know how i would look. i mm. mean yes i would know that i felt very alive in that moment offering my whole self you know in a way that mm. i hadn't before on the other hand, it was a very positive experience. Um, it was received. There were some people, like some other biracial people there that I felt safe with, but then there were there were a lot of others that like, this was new for them, you know, all of it. Had they, you know, in some way rejected that or had it been a bad experience, I wonder how I would look back on it. I mean, yes, I can't deny what was going on with just me, but um, it was very much tied to the community that I was in. Um, and that embracing of self is very much something we experience with other people. Yeah. And so, I mean, even in that way, it wasn't just, you know, me sharing a piece of my mom and me being connected to her. It was also me being connected to the people that I was feeding. You know, it's like an extension of what she yeah. did with me. Um, mm. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that you would say that. I think for me, yes, reconnecting with my mom has been, I mean, that that's the whole, that, that's the whole of my book a lot, you know, mm. that belonging with her. And that doesn't mean that it's always feels perfect, but the work of um, embracing her story alongside of mine um, has been so important. I couldn't have just accepted myself or, <laughs> you know, without that. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. That was a lot of interaction. That was a lot of, can you try to teach me how to make kimchi again? Can you, you know, I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. we go back to these things that you probably tried to show me that I rejected that I really want now. And not just want, like, not just want because I want to um, listen to you or respect you or honor you. All of that is true. But I also crave it. It's like, I need mm -hmm. that. And I need your input and only the way you can give. I can't just go about this by myself. Mm. Um, I think too, like just connecting with others who feel this um, kind of diasporic. I don't even know if that's a word, but I use it like grief. Um, those of us that kind yes. of have been cut off from our yeah, ancestors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad you know? you're bringing this up. Yeah. yeah, well, and just um, feeling again, that grief and lament, but also like connecting with others and like, 
in that that community and it's kind of affirmed yes we do come from somewhere we do have you know <laughs> yeah. a history even if those names are unknown you know we, mm-hmm. we you know kind of taking that where where are you from and what are you and flipping it like um mm-hmm. in a grounding way like we do um and so yeah and yeah I'm talking a lot, but yeah, I think even just connecting with other Asian American women in my community, searching for that, um, bringing up those questions, creating spaces for us to talk about the, those things that's been integral for me in understanding myself and, and continuing that embrace, you know, um, I could not just do it alone in my, you know, in my writing and by myself. I don't, yeah. Yeah. It would only take you so far and it's disjointed. Yes. I wonder if if you could expand more on on the reclamation of your people, even when you're disjointed, because I think that in your in your history, yeah, um, because I think it is this is such a crucial space, not only for BIPOC folks, but for everyone, especially I'm not going to say especially <laughs> for white folks, too, yeah. because white folks have adopted whiteness and in the process have lost their people their ethnicities, yeah. their their histories, their ancestors, and it would go a long way for identity, so you could latch onto something beyond just whiteness and its privileges, if you found out who your people are. Oh, but, yeah. And, and here's the problem for white folks, but, and I also think of many of the writers, even on this podcast, who are talking about, listen, the, the process of reclaiming my people, my ancestors, it's not only disjointed, but is disjointed because I do not have and cannot have connections with my people, with my grandparents, with uh, my great-grandparents or aunts and uncles, um, be it through adoption, be it through colonization and and all sorts. How have you bridged the gap, and and that's the operative word, the gaps, when it comes to reclaiming yourself but your people and culture yeah um i think first of all just by being honest about the fact that they are there i think one thing i've seen and have been tempted to do myself is just this jump of well this is my people so i am just everything you know i don't know if that makes sense but kind of not thinking through what gaps are there what things do i need to grieve and that it's okay to like to grieve the fact, you know, that, you know, when my husband and I like did a, we did one of those DNA testing things and I, there was like all this information and I had some information already from my dad's side. My dad is, um, on his paternal on, or on my paternal, his paternal side is Dutch and, um, very much Dutch. And then there's a lot of British, um, you know, um, and a, a lot of a mix in there, but a lot of British, um, Scottish mix in there. Um, and so I knew some of it, but there was a lot of information there. I could go back really far. And then on my mom's side, there was nothing. There were like two names and, you yeah, know, no yeah. connections. And I think just seeing it in yeah. the, the little tree online, it like just like broke something in me. It was like, um, there was this question of, am I actually connected like at yeah, all? If I can yeah. see nothing, um, wow. see nothing there. Um, and so that was almost like there was this either I just drop it and I don't know, just don't do anything with it. Or um, I take some time to grieve that, the fact that there are these details that are just gone. Um, 
but also take in what is true for me. Like, how was I, how did I experience love and nurturing growing up? It's all very Korean. Um, and so there's a connection there, but I don't have names to attach to it. I don't have faces. I don't have, um, you know, all of those things. So I think acknowledging the gaps, grieving them maybe, and maybe that those come back in waves. And so we have to give space for that. Um, mm. But then on the flip side, um, kind of just taking time to research things like, um, you know, finding out about Korean holidays that, you know, we didn't experience growing up, but thinking through like my ancestors probably hmm. um, celebrated yeah, this, yeah. probably cooked like this. What's one thing I can do to kind of reclaim that in my family line while also acknowledging that I'm learning it, you know, it's not something that I can just pick up off the ground. I'm like learning it, trying, trying again. That's definitely been a big process, like grief, you know, studying, learning, being a learner of my own <laughs> ancestry, if that even makes sense. Um, and also being okay with not knowing. And I think, you know, there's a lot of pain in feeling like I, I don't really fit either side. So, um, so yeah, being able yeah. to even do that on the, the other side of things, like, yes, I, I, you know, I identify as BIPOC, I am Korean American and biracial, um, but I do have white ancestry and I do have European ancestry. And so even like mm -hmm. thinking through, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean yeah. as I hold those, those worlds in yeah, my yeah, mind, yeah. you know, and, and, and thinking through the ancestors that probably would have they would not have been in the same room or they, you know, it yeah, would have yeah. been very destructive. Yeah, so, yeah. um, yeah, acknowledging mm. that. How to hold that tension well, because at the end of the day, that is you and you yeah. are good. So how to hold the goodness of, of your created beauty. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate you naming grief and loss. And to hold space around that and that it can come in waves, mm. especially, especially when we are disconnected from that relationship. Yeah. So I think about my people and my ancestors and the missing relational connections. And some of them we can reclaim in terms of like relationships to land, let's say. Yeah. And I think of my own stories of displacement upon displacement upon displacement, you know. Uh, so there's some connections of reclaiming holidays, as, as you expressed. Um, but yeah, there's a grief and a loss of, and what up, What about the grandfather I never knew and, and right. the great-grandfather? And what about the great-grandmother that I do know and the history that has shaped and formed me more so? And holding all that in its tensions. Yes. Yeah. That's a beautiful work. And one of the, it's the subtitle, but one of the themes of your storytelling is to name the work of finding belonging as sacred. Mm. When it comes to belonging, why is this sacred work? Mm. I mean, I think it was what we were created, you know, to be like that, to belong. I'm like, is that the right word? We were created and we do belong. Um, we hold it in us. And yet it is very tied to our connection to others. Um, I think when I look back on my life, it is the thing that has driven me. Um, it's what I've been looking for, longing for. And, you know, so many mm -hmm. of the things that I've 
done or sought out. Um, even in things that I, you know, wouldn't even think are connected to it. But when I look back, I'm like, that's, we all are longing for that, that kind yeah, of going yeah. back to our belovedness and our belonging. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that involves one another too, not just, you know, us and God, although it is, there is a us and God in there. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I do think it's very sacred. I think it, um, I think when we realize that we're longing for that and that a lot of, that that drives a lot of us, I think it changes the way we see one another too. The way that we um, approach each other and see one another as other human beings and, you know, others, each other's humanity and the fact that someone else that we're talking to or that we are around is also created to belong and and does carry that within Mm -hmm. them as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of think just anything that, anything that we do to move towards that reality is is sacred. It's sacred work. I think seeing that way has has been so fr- seeing that has been so freeing to me because for a long time I believed you know that ministry was certain things you know yeah, yeah, um, it yeah. did not involve anything that we're talking about today. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's just mm. it's just changed a lot. Um, yeah. I no, I haven't used that that word. Okay. Uh, as as sacred, but of course it is. I yeah. per, perhaps I have used the word holistic mm. because, like you've named, there's this component, and if you've been shaped in forms of, I'll just use my context of evangelicalism. Yeah. Gosh, if you just belong to God or b- belong to God's family, and so that there's your belonging. Yeah. And once again, that's too individualistic. It it strikes me as incomplete, and it's not whole. God, uh, the the great commands are to love the Lord, your God, but then it's all of a sudden, uh, love the neighbor, love the other, love yourself, love each other in community, like all these different pieces. And, and I will even add, and to have a connection or belonging to land as well. Yeah. And if you have these pieces, as you explore that communal relationship in relationship, that makes a lot more sense. So yeah, I've, I've called it whole, but no doubt that that process and that work into all of those different intersections is deeply sacred. Mm. Uh, as you unlock deeper pieces of yourself, how is that not sacred? Right. Yeah. You, We've broached this now, so I wonder if we can trail off now and and speak to the aspects of faith and in what manner your faith has shaped or or rather has changed has shifted mm. in order to come alongside or perhaps you alongside it a more beautiful way of belonging yeah you know you mentioned or you threw out just kind of learning in those first 20 years of evangelicalism, kind of like we all belong to God and you belong to God. So it's fine like that, you know, but I think, you know, and I think the phrase that I heard a lot, if I ever brought anything up about ethnicity or cultural, you know, I mean, there were times when I tried to bring that up with a woman that prayed with me all the time, who was wonderful, but um, I was met a lot of times with your identity is in Christ and that's all that matters. And so, um, and (laughs) just, I just spit out my water if I was oh. drinking water. 
<laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, we've all heard that. Yes. And it's ridiculous. Yes. Well, and I think it's it, it was so hard, you know, because I believed that, but it felt like, okay, that just that like piece just of shut you, me down. Yeah, know? a piece of yeah. you was left behind in that yes. process. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so I carried that with me for a long time and had this inner wrestling of, I do believe my identity is in Christ, but what does that mean if the things that, you know, that hurt me the most, the things that I think about the most, the things that I wrestle with the most, they all are connected to my relationship with my mm. mom, ethnicity, mm. my, you know, and these aren't things I can even bring up because I just get met with this. It doesn't really matter, but you matter, you know, contradiction. Um, and so I carried that with me for a long time. And I think I just tried to use it to even silence my own wrestling. Um, mm, and again, yeah, my own yeah. longings for belonging that were not being met, mm. but I just thought something was wrong with me, you know, <laughs> just, mm, that's just no. kind of how you go forward. Yeah. Um, and then again, just Ugh. came to this point, you know, where I kind of, internally and i wasn't necessarily sharing this externally with others but was feeling like okay if this is it this i this is not sustainable if you know i'm going to keep carrying around this wrestling by myself and keep thinking i'm crazy and that something's wrong with me then i can't keep doing this you know and 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 mm. telling god you know talking to god honestly like what like there has to be something more than, you know, this thing that I've given up my life for, um, and this, this, this career path that I'm, <laughs> you know, um, I wouldn't have called it this calling, um, that I feel like <laughs> yeah. I am supposed to be living out. Um, and so it was at that point where I think things started to shift. Um, and, you know, in my own times of journaling, when I was really that honest with God, um, and just kind of pouring out how I really felt. Um, and this kind of was around the same time that I made that meal in Germany. Um, but just mm. really feeling the sense of, okay, if God does love me, um, I need to know that, you know, you love me, God, like down into the deepest parts of who I am. And this needs to extend further than just me taking this path, this Christian path in my life. It needs to extend to my past needs to extend to how I understand my relationship with my mom. It needs to be all of that. Um, all of that needs to be welcomed in this, you know, journey. And really what, where I went from there was starting to kind of read scripture, starting to just have these, you know, times of solitude where I was like, he does like, this is, it's not just, you know, your identities in Christ and none of that matters. Mm, it's mm. the complete opposite. And so mm, that's kind yes. of where, yeah, my journey started shifting more just internally um, a lot of times of solitude, just that's where I was journaling, like just all the time. But my relationship with God became very intimate at that point. Um, it, it changed, everything changed. And I think that's what, that's what I needed, you know, to kind of like, do I really believe this? Like all these doubts, like, yes, this is what I'm looking for. Um, and not that I just throw out everything that was prior to that, but it, it couldn't have sustained me in a life of faith, you know, um, if it continued in that shallow way. So Ooh, um, shallow yeah. yeah very surface level <laughs> so which is probably indicative to how many christians are formed i remember ironically a saying of my pastor as a kid that so many christians uh have been a christian like they're a mile long but only an inch deep oh interesting <laughs> yeah and you know he was i don't know but 
there are a lot of folks, BIPOC folks in particular, who are hanging on to the inch deep mm. and are at tension. Yeah. When in fact, their liberation, freedom and wholeness are on the other side, mm. <laughs> on the flip side from only holding identity in one described place. Yeah. It's incomplete. I really enjoyed our conversation. We're out of time, but I'll give you the last word uh, to let folks know where they can find you, your book, uh, and yeah. <laughs> any other shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Such an honor to be here. And um, this has been one of my favorite conversations so far. So I don't know if you should say that on a podcast, but um, it's been really <laughs> fun. Um, yeah, I, I'm on Instagram. It's Tasha June B. And I have a newsletter. It's Shalom Sick Notes on Substack. And yeah, and my book, I think you can find it um, just about anywhere that books are sold. So 